0: State and Georgia played each other last night in the first round of the college football playoff. But things didn't start well because my hopes for Ohio State revenge against another team ended pretty quickly when another team lost to TCU. But no matter what happened in the game I was most interested in, either Holly or I, one of us was going to end the year with hopes still alive for a national championship, and the other with hopes crushed. And to complicate matters, the kids in our home are just as divided as Holly and I. Although we, we both love our respective teams, neither Holly or I are in the habit of cheering against each other's teams, which made it a somewhat uncomfortable game to watch especially for me right at midnight when the potentially game-winning kick sailed wide left. What a way to kick off the new year. When the game ended, there was, of course, zero hope for the Ohio State Buckeyes to achieve their goal of competing for a national championship. And yet hope was still alive in the Butoh household. Not just the hope of a Georgia national championship, but hope for the Butoh family. We survived four quarters of a thrilling, back-and-forth dogfight of a football game without bragging or smack talk, without hurt feelings or sore losers, with the ability to be generally happy for each other. Now I know a football game is kind of a silly analogy for this sort of thing, but the truth remains that God loves to bring hope in unlikely places. When things are confusing, scary, when your life is painful, frustrating, depressing, terrifying, boring, and seemingly unimportant. God loves to bring hope. And the places in your life when you would love nothing more than to bury your head in the sand, the places in your life where you would love to just Pull the covers up over your head and forget everything else. And the places in your life where everything seems terrifying and about to fall apart, God loves to bring hope. He specializes, it seems, in shining the light of hope in the darkest, scariest places in our lives. That's just what I think he does in our passage this morning. If you're not already there, I'd invite you to open your Bibles or grab one of the Bibles from a chair beneath you or around you and turn to Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Let me just set the context of what's going on um, We've been a couple of weeks out of the Gospel of Matthew, but Jesus is still fairly early on in his ministry. It's in the early days of his ministry still, and yet we've just noticed, just recently in fact, a shift in the way that people are responding to Jesus. Particularly the religious leaders. Uh, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests. These are kind of the religious elites of the day, and they've always kind of been suspicious of Jesus, but now there's something more sinister going on. Now, they're beginning to shift towards not merely questioning Jesus, not merely pushing back a bit, but verbally attacking Him. And so, by the time we get to the end of our text, they're falsely accusing Jesus of casting out demons with the power of Satan. Jesus is no pushover and so Jesus strikes back and Jesus has the last word in our text this morning and he warns the Pharisees of committing a sin that cannot ever be forgiven. So Think about what we've got in this story. We've got powerful demons, Jesus deniers, and the forever damned. It's an unlikely place to find hope. And yet, with God's help, I pray you'll leave having found just that. Go to the Lord in prayer one more time together. Would you bow with me? Father, help us to understand your word. Jesus, help me to clearly proclaim the truth about you. Spirit, bring the hope in this text into the dark corners of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna show you four scenes in our text this morning. We walk through this passage together. Four basic scenes to understand our passage. First, there's a convincing miracle. Then there's a comical accusation, a credible defense, and a chilling warning. That's our outline. We're going to walk through that together. Number one, a convincing miracle. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, Christians in the room, this is God's word, and we believe that this is true. And yet, just in that first verse, there is something there that feels like it belongs more to like a a horror film than reality. A man who's oppressed by a demon and unable to see or speak because of the influence of that demon. Really? 21st century? We're in 2023. Really still believing in demons? In his book about the demonic activity in the world, uh, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's one is to disbelieve their existence the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them there's two extremes one they're not real the other they're real and I'm preoccupied with them so so let's kind of walk that line in between the two do we believe in the existence of demons or what do we believe about them well first of all we believe that they're real Christians, we believe that demons are real. Virtually every culture in human history, virtually every good story on print or in film has some sort of idea about the existence of real supernatural evil forces. It's only in the uber-enlightened and scientific modern West where we deny the existence of this sort of being. Of course, Christians, we, we don't formulate a theology of the unseen realm based on polling data. Our authority is the Word of God. So we believe that demons are real spiritual beings because of what we see in the scriptures. There are nearly 100 references to demons in the New Testament alone. Nearly 100 references to demons in the New Testament alone. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that all of our stereotypes about demons are true demons aren't wearing little red suits with pointy horns the Bible doesn't say anything about demons holding pitchforks or sitting on your shoulder or anything like that but the Bible does present demons as being very real beings now, let me ask a question Christian if you're struggling with that reality do you believe in Jesus do you believe in Jesus you're a Christian. You better say yes. Now, Jesus in this text and in countless other places throughout the New Testament acts as if demons are real. So only one of three things can be happening: either Jesus is crazy because demons aren't real, either Jesus knows they're not real and he's lying, or demons are real and Jesus knows them. One of those three things is true. We believe demons are real. Number two, we believe that demons are created. These are not eternal beings. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. They're created beings. Now there's no Bible verse that says, you know, and on the 12th day God created Demons. Or anything like that you won't find an explicit reference to the creation of demons in the bible here's what you will find explicit statements that say god created everything so for example colossians chapter 1 verse 16 this is referring to jesus by jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's significant that in that passage where Paul talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those four terms are often used to describe the unseen, supernatural realm created by Jesus you might ask, well, why would God create demons? Well, God didn't create demons as demons. The Bible also tells us that they are fallen angels, created as angels to worship God in heaven, and they fell. We don't know a lot about when they fell or how they fell. We've got little pictures here and there. Here's one in Revelation chapter 12. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We get a picture of what happened. God created Satan and his demons as angels, and at some point they rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. It's important to remember that demons are created beings so that we don't put them on the same plane as God. Okay? Think about the lyrics we sung a little bit ago. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. We're not afraid of them. Not because of the strength in ourselves, but because of what we have in Christ. Humans are created beings. And yet, let us not, on the other hand go to another extreme and say, it's no big deal. I'm not worried about no demons. Demons are powerful. Third truth we believe about them. They're powerful. They have power that manifests itself in the real physical world. The grammar in our text and the original language suggests that this man is blind and mute because of the power of these demons. In other words, the Scriptures seem to indicate that demons even have the ability to cause physical problems in this life. They're powerful. Now let's be careful. Every headache isn't some demon, right? You got a flat tire, it doesn't mean you got a demon that's poking a hole in your tire. Could it be? Well, sure. But let's not go looking for a demon under every rock. There's, again, there's a balance here. And yet, most of us, I think, are far too likely to assume that the supernatural world has nothing to do with the natural world. That's not true. This man cannot see because of the power of demons. He cannot speak because of the power of demons. We know that's not true for every blind person that Jesus heals. In fact, there's one man Jesus heals who's blind. The disciples say, whose fault was it? Him or his parents? Jesus says, no, not the way it works. Sometimes they might be able to disrupt your life and mine in that way, but not every time. So how do you know? You don't. You're not Jesus. is that they are very powerful beings even if they're still created ultimately we looked at Jesus not the demons because we believe that demons are defeated the fourth truth about demons they're defeated think about how desperate this man is one commentator put it this way Because of the the, the demon's influence, this man, the man that Jesus heals, could neither speak to ask for help nor see to go and find him. Just think about that. You can't ask for help. You can't look for help. This man is absolutely desperate and Jesus in an instant heals him. And what I love about this healing, it's not even the big part of this story. I mean, we're just verse one of the whole text. And it's just like an afterthought. And Jesus heals him and he can see and he can speak. The Bible doesn't even tell us how he did it, he just did it. How is it that Jesus is able to do this? How can he so easily wreak havoc on the unseen demonic realm? Well, Jesus is going to answer that for us a little bit more as we go along. But for now, the answer is really simple. Demons have been defeated. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He, again, that's referring to Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities. There's that phrase, rulers, authorities. We saw that in Colossians 1. Referring to the unseen realm. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians goes on to explain that that happens primarily at the cross. The demonic realm has been defeated. Now, practically, Christian, this does not mean that demons are now powerless, but it does mean their doom is certain. And it does mean that their power is limited. And it does mean that our focus should not be on them, but on the king who has defeated them. Perhaps an analogy will help to think about how these demons have been defeated. Maybe think about the most lopsided college football game in history. It was October 7th, 1916. And the Cumberland College Bulldogs, the Bulldogs, went to play the Georgia Tech Engineers. And Cumberland College was defeated by a score of 222 to 0. Not only was Cumberland College kept from scoring the entire game, they did not earn a single first down. Talk about a blowout. 222 to to nothing. Entering the fourth quarter. The third quarter's over. Switch sides. Fourth quarter. Cumberland College is down one hundred and eighty to nothing. It's surprising that Georgia Tech still scored 42 more points in the fourth quarter. That's another story. They're down 180-nothing. Guess what? That's impossible to come back from that. The game's over. And yet it's not. See, college football is a game with a clock, and you play until the clock goes down to zero, right? And so the game is not over. The defeat is sure. The doom is certain. The largest comeback in college football history is 35 points. They're down 180, nothing. They are not coming back, and yet the game's not over. So, too, with the unseen realm. At the cross, Jesus delivered a death blow to Satan and his demons. And they are not coming back. And yet the game is not over yet. They continue to meddle around, disrupt, even hurt people. Maybe even some of you here today. But there's no chance they're winning. Now, how did the people respond to this convincing miracle? Look at verse 23. All the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? Is this the long-awaited Messiah that we're looking for, to be the king of kings, to sit on David's throne? Could this be him? They haven't yet determined that he is, which is a issue in and of itself you're eager to see more let me ask you dear friend not a follower of Jesus in this room how have you responded to the miracles of Jesus how have you responded to what you've read and heard about what he's done do you believe that he's the son of David the son of God if not why are you unsure Would you be willing to spend time learning more about this Jesus, who he is, and what he's done so that you too might believe? I just challenge you, if you're in that place this morning, you're not sure, but you're willing to learn more, talk to the person that brought you here today. Talk to someone sitting near you today and say, would you help me? I guarantee you that someone near you would love to help you know what it means to follow this Jesus. Well, even though the crowd responds with kind of an eager hopefulness, not everybody responds that way. So in the second scene in our story, we see a comical accusation. Look at verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. That name Beelzebul is likely connected to a, a Philistine idol named Beelzebub. But over time, the word kind of changed its meaning to be like a nickname for Satan. So essentially what they're saying is that Jesus, they can't deny his power. I mean, everybody's seen it. They've seen it themselves. They can't deny his power. What they do is they reject the source of his power. So rather than believing based on what they've seen, they say, no, we're just going to blame his power on Satan. He's doing this with Satan's power. This is like Buzz Lightyear refusing to believe that he's a toy, despite all the evidence that that proves it. And these guys have seen the miracles of Jesus, and they refuse to believe. By the way, if you're in this room, and you're not a Christian, you're tempted to say, well, you know, I would believe if I could see. No, you wouldn't. Sight is not enough to generate faith. Many people saw and didn't believe. There's something deeper going on in your heart, friend. They saw and they refused to believe, but it's more sinister than refusing to believe. Notice what the Pharisees are doing. They're not only refusing to believe themselves, they're using their influence as teachers of God's word. These are spiritual leaders in that day. They're using their influence as spiritual leaders and teachers to cast doubt and to discredit the work of Jesus. This is a form of spiritual abuse. That's what's happening in this text. Now, just a word here for those of you that teach the Bible. If you're a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, discipleship group leader, if you're an elder, you have a sobering task. Parents teaching your children, you have a sobering task. When you teach God's Word, your responsibility is only to condemn what the Bible condemns and only to celebrate what the Bible celebrates. These Pharisees see the work of Jesus and they condemn it as demonic, using their spiritual influence to do so. And Jesus responds brilliantly to their comical accusation. Jesus, he he, he responds with two major cuts at what they say. First, he says, what you've said is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 25, knowing their thoughts. It's another evidence of the deity of Jesus. He knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, what are you, what are you guys talking about? Why would Satan be casting out Satan? It doesn't make any sense. A house divided against itself doesn't stand. Jesus' words are self-evidently true. We have seen them to be true all throughout human history. A nation divided internally cannot stand for long. A state, a government, a family, a marriage, a church, divided cannot stand. We know that to be true. Just last night, you're watching the game, the Buckeyes were up by 11 with nine minutes left, and that was the perfect time for me to text one of my friends from seminary who's a Georgia Bulldogs fan. You're watching this game, and he said, I knew you were going to text me, ready for the trash talk. I said, Bro, I'm not going to trash talk you. I know you guys can come back and win this. Listen, I've got to go to bed with a Bulldogs fan. I'm not trash talking anybody, right? A house divided against itself cannot stand. We know that to be true. Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. It's essentially what Jesus is saying here. And he knows he can't attack his own people, his own forces. So he says this is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. There's another reason why Jesus attacks what they say it was inconsistent. Look at verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. If Jesus had a microphone, he'd drop it right then. Now, here's what he's saying Your followers, you guys say you cast out demons a lot, don't you? How do they do it? It's inconsistent. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene and he is absolutely wreaking havoc on the demonic world and the Pharisees say no he must be doing it with Satan's power and Jesus says you guys have been trying to do this stuff for years and now all of a sudden you're going to point the finger at me how are your sons doing it they're going to judge you before we move on from here I want you to notice Brother, sister, friend, Christianity is a logical religion. It's rooted in reality, in history, in facts. Maybe you think, "Are you kidding me? You guys believe in? You guys believe demons are real? What are you talking? About? Your religion's rooted in facts." Let me ask you a question. If that's you here. Do you reject the possibility of the entire unseen realm, all supernatural beings, or merely the beings that the Bible calls demons? In other words, do you allow for the possibility of anything, any sort of being that you can't see? Do you believe in ghosts, spirits, angels, gods? If you believe in any sort of unseen supernatural being, then why would you dismiss the likelihood of what the Bible calls demons without some logical reason to do so? If you reject the entire possibility of an unseen realm, why? You would say, well, because I've never seen it. But isn't that the definition of an unseen realm? What's... Of course you can't see it. It's an unseen realm. These are supernatural beings. Well, you might say, well, I've never seen evidence of them. Is that really because you haven't seen evidence or because you've already decided to reject all evidence that you might see because you've already decided you don't believe? Christianity is a supernatural religion, to be sure, but it's not an illogical one. It's rooted in reality, it's rooted in facts, it's rooted in logic. Jesus, when people accuse him, he doesn't say, hey, just believe me, just take a leap of faith. He defends himself using reason and logic. That's where we get to the third scene in our text where Jesus offers up a credible defense. Why is he, or how is he doing what he's doing? In verse 28 He moves from rejecting the Pharisee's accusation to explaining how he's able to cast out demons. Look at verse 28. If it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice what he's saying. Guys, there could be another option here. Instead of Satan giving me the power to do this, what if it's the Spirit of God? By the way, guys... If it's the Spirit of God empowering me to do this, that means that the kingdom of God has begun. And by the way, implicitly, Jesus is saying, if the kingdom of God has begun, I'm beginning. I'm beginning. The very thing these Pharisees refuse to believe. Jesus continues, look at verse 29. Tells a little parable. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now I was trying to think of a strong man and the only person that really came to mind immediately was Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Even his cartoon characters are strong. I mean, the dude is strong. Let's just imagine, not recommending this, this is not an endorsement, not a suggestion, but let's just imagine that you wanted to steal something from Dwayne Johnson's house in Beverly Hills. Don't do it, kids. Let's just say you wanted to. And let's just say he's at home. How are you gonna do it? I mean, he's Dwayne Johnson. Think of all the things he could do to you if you try to rob him. He's got the the, the people's elbow the Samoan drop, the rock bottom. If you don't know what any of that is, those are some of his wrestling moves. I Googled them this morning, just to be sure. I mean, he can lay you out easily. The only way you're going to plunder the strong man's house is if you first somehow restrain him. That in itself is going to be a problem. We don't have time for that. But you get the point, right? You can't just go into somebody's territory and take their stuff unless first you restrain them. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, this is Satan's house and I'm the robber and I'm coming into his territory and I am plundering left and right. These souls Satan has held captive, I am bringing them back. I am rescuing them and bringing them into the kingdom of God. How could I do that unless I first bind the strong man? That's what Jesus is saying. At some point in his ministry, most believe at his temptation. You remember the story? Jesus goes in the wilderness for for 40 days, 40 nights. And in the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil. And you remember, at the end of that temptation, Satan leaves. Most believe that's when Jesus binds the strong man. That victory only escalates moving towards the cross. But Jesus says, I've tied that joker up. And once that happens, he is plundering his house left and right. Now, Satan is not literally tied up somewhere, okay? But in the coming of Jesus, Satan's power has been so limited, it's like he's on a leash. This being who deceived the nations no longer has the power to deceive the nations until Christ returns and throws him into hell forever. Martin Luther once famously said that Satan is God's devil. Or in other words, God has Satan on a leash. He's collared up, he's bound, he's tied down, he can only do what God allows. And here's the thing, what Satan does do God uses it to accomplish what God wants. go about one clear example of this. Judas. The night he betrays Jesus. Do you remember what happened to him before he betrayed Jesus? Satan entered him. Now, we know Satan's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. He can enter one person at a time. So he chose to enter Judas, the top dog, the chief demon, the main guy, the boss, goes into Judas and leads Judas to betray Jesus to accomplish exactly what God planned. That's what God does. He has bound the strong man through the work of Christ. So Christian, how are you going to respond to this? Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, it's okay to consider the evidence. Jesus, after all, had been in Galilee for about a year by this point doing miracles. It's okay to take some time and consider the evidence. We'd encourage you to do that. We'd love to help you do that. But you can't stay on the fence forever. At some point, you're either with him or against him. Christian, your apathy in following Jesus is not a minor thing. Jesus says, if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. Are you apathetic in your walk with Jesus, Christian? It's not a minor thing. Could it be that we often fail to plant gospel seed, to gather with Jesus, Because we haven't really let it sink in how defeated our enemy is. Think again to the lyrics we sung earlier. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's that word? That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We should plant gospel seed with hopeful confidence because Jesus has won the victory. Now, if like me, you often feel guilty about your struggles to evangelize the way you wish that you did, perhaps you're also fearful about the final words in our passage are even wondering, if I'm struggling so much, maybe I'm not even a Christian. Maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin that Jesus concludes with. Let's consider scene number four, a chilling warning. Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This passage is often called the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. It's one of the most chilling chilling passages in the whole Bible because Here, God is telling us through Jesus, here's a sin that you can commit, and I'll never forgive you, ever. Jeremy led us earlier through that prayer about our own struggles to forgive each other. We know that God is a forgiving God, but there is a sin, his word says, that he will never forgive. In fact, that's exactly the way it's worded in the Gospel of Mark. Perhaps even more chilling, Mark 3.29 says, whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'll never do that, and then they ended up doing it? Sometimes we hear the word never, it's kind of lost its meaning, and we're like, they don't really mean never. Listen, God always means never. If you want to have any hope that he will never forsake his people, if you want to believe that that never is true, you've got to believe this never is true too, as chilling, as painful as it might be. When God says never, he means it. So what is the unpardonable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? What is it? Perhaps even in this room, you read this passage. And you're terrified by. It. This is scary. This is confusing. This, could it be me? Let me tell you some things it's not. It's not racism. As horrible as it is to mistreat another person because of their ethnicity or their race, that can be forgiven. It's not drunkenness, it's not drug addiction. It's not pornography. It's not adultery. It's not murder. The unforgivable sin is not even the murder of abortion. It's not homosexuality or transgenderism. It's not even denying Jesus. It's not suicide. You know, some of our friends and other have taught things like that. None of those things are unforgivable sins. Now that doesn't mean those things aren't sin. It doesn't mean that we accept those things. We say it's all fine. No. But all those things can be forgiven and have been forgiven for countless Christians who will one day hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. And maybe even many of you in here this morning. So what is the unpardonable? it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit now, let, let me give you a definition of that a pastor named Kevin DeYoung I think it will be on the screen for you too blasphemy against the Spirit is a conscious, clear consistent repudiation of Christ by those who should know better each of those words in there are really important first it's conscious this is not kind of a throwaway slip up unintentional word right how many times have husbands let's be honest how many times we said something as soon as we said it, we're like oh man why did i say that like we do that right we 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 unintentionally say things you're not going to commit this sin that way It's a conscious thing. You know exactly what you're doing. If you're in this room thinking, maybe I've done it, I'm just not sure, you haven't. It's a conscious thing. You know exactly what you're doing. It's clear. In other words, the unforgivable sin, this is not an issue of doubt or struggle. Think about the difference between how Jesus interacted with John the Baptist few months ago when we were in that passage and how he's interacting with the Pharisees here. Think of how he interacts with Thomas on his resurrection. Thomas struggled to believe but he didn't commit the unpardonable sin. This is a clear rejection of Jesus. It's conscious, it's clear, it's consistent. This is not something that you do or say, and then later turn from. This is the the consistent mark of your life. The way that the Pharisees talk about Jesus here is the same way they talk about him in Matthew 9.34, Mark 3.22, and Luke 11.15. This was their mantra. This was their consistent posture against Jesus. It's a repudiation of Christ. Repudiation is more than a mere rejection. When you reject something, you say, I don't want that. When you repudiate something, you say, I don't want that. That's despicable. different. Both wrong if you're rejecting Christ, but to repudiate Jesus, like what the Pharisees are doing here. I reject him and... I think that he's working for Satan. See that? Creation of Jesus. And finally, by those who should know better. These were experts of the Scriptures. They were the religious elite. They had seen Jesus' miracles, and they knew better, but they refused to believe. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not unforgivable because it's too bad and the cross just isn't quite enough to cover that kind of sin. The unforgivable sin is unforgivable because those who commit that sin will never repent. It's not so much an act or an utterance, but a particular disposition of your heart. Those who consciously, clearly, consistently repudiate Jesus will never be forgiven because they'll never repent. So, where's the hope in this? Where's the hope? Look with me again a verse. Therefore, I tell you. Sin and blasphemy will be Every sin. Jesus is not he's not preaching automatic forgiveness. He's referring to those who come to him in repentance of faith. Every sin will be forgiven. Would you think about that? Won't you let that sink in for a second, Christian? follower of Jesus, every sin you could ever ever commit, every sin you ever wanted to commit, every sin you ever thought about committing, sins you haven't even committed yet, forgiven, if you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Notice what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying you will be forgiven as long as you make sure you you confess every single sin. No. You're not forgiven because you confess every sin. Guess what? You're going to forget a lot of them. You're going to sin so much, you don't even remember what to confess. You're not forgiven because you make sure to confess every sin. You're forgiven because you're in Christ. You're not forgiven because you confess perfectly. Often when I'm counseling folks or when I'm dealing with my own kids and there's a need to apologize, you hear apologies like this. Well, I'm sorry I did that, but I'm sorry that your feelings were hurt. I'm sorry you took it that way. None of those are real confessions. How often do you confess like that to God? Does God then say to you, nope, no forgiveness for you. Hmm. No. Even your sins of not confessing rightly are forgiven if you're in Christ. Because you are not forgiven on how good you are at confessing, but how good Jesus is at paying the penalty for your sin. You are not forgiven because you're able to forsake your sins forever. Those of you that know the long, deep clause that sin has in your heart and life, and you know what it is to battle a sin for years or decades and often feel like it's one step forward, two steps back. You might feel like, I can't be forgiven because I can't fully let this go. If you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you're forgiven even for that. How unlike our forgiveness is Jesus' forgiveness. Here's what I want you to get, Christian. You are as forgiven now as you will ever be. Listen to the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We shall grow in grace but we shall never be more completely pardoned than when we first believed. We shall want to stand before the glorious presence of God in his own sacred courts and see the well-beloved and wear his likeness. But we shall not even then be more perfectly forgiven than we are at this present moment. That is glorious good news. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can be forgiven today. If you're fearful that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't committed it. You haven't. Because the person that's fearful of committing it, in their heart is a posture that says, I want forgiveness. The person that says, I don't give a rip about Jesus being, you know, forgiving me. You, dear friend, might be in danger today you repent. But if your heart is soft and you say, I don't want to do that. You haven't yet. Come to him for forgiveness today. The head of a large mental hospital once said he could send half his patient's home cured if they could only be convinced of the forgiveness of sins. Christian, you have that assurance. Not because you're good at confessing, Not because you're good at forsaking, not because you're good at remembering all the sins you committed, but because your faith is in Jesus. 1 John 1 9, let's conclude from this text. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you. Speaking to us through your word. Thank you for the scriptures that warn us and yet fill us with hope. Jesus, we thank you that you defeated Satan, that you died so that we could be forgiven, that we are not forgiven because of our goodness in confessing, but in your greatness in forgiving. Spirit, we thank you for drawing us to God. And we pray that even now you would draw more to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together? Receive the benediction from Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.